Okay, I think we're rolling. There we go. Now, uh, as I get this going, the uh, uh, one, just more. Come on, there we go. For those of you uh, on my uh, the email list, uh, I, I teased you a little about what we were going to be talking about today. And the email, I told you we'd be discussing God's providence, God's providence. Um, and uh, like so many other words that we use in, in, a, in a Christian setting, that can be a word that we, we just become accustomed to, to hearing. And when we have words like that, uh, where you just become accustomed to hearing them, you, you, you probably get a sense for what it means, just by context clues, as, as they say in, uh, in grammar school and other, in other uh, learning environments like that. But, but just a quick show of hands. How many of you have heard that expression for, before, the providence of God? The providence of God. Okay, uh, a good number of you. Um, many of you have, have heard that. How about another expression? How many of you have heard the expression, the sovereignty of God? You've heard of the sovereignty of God? Okay, good. Great number of you as well, both of them. Um, now, here's the hard part. Is there someone here that wants to be brave enough and articulate the difference between the two? Is there someone that can tell me the difference between the sovereignty of God and the providence of God? The sovereignty of God and the providence of God. Anyone want to try that? You've heard them both. A lot of you held your hands up. And I don't mean, I'm not trying to shame you here. <laughs> I'm just wondering, is there, because again, this is, even, even lately, I was like, okay, what, what's, what's really the, the articulable difference between the sovereignty of God and the providence of God? Let's see, I'm going to have you use that little tiny microphone. We're trying to get this to show up on the recording, and sometimes it works. there with God is always there with us and the providence of God uh, is is the idea that uh, he molds us prepares us okay all right I like those someone else yeah so I think the providence of God as his as it says provision his taking care of us his providing for us we never have to worry that we're not going to have enough because he will provide. His sovereignty, on the other hand, is his kingship, his rulership overall, his absolute authority. And very good, very good. So, in other words, you weren't. You, wasn't this similar to what uh, what it was saying? You, there, the definitions were in line with one another. Uh, but that's really good. That's uh, a good uh, working definition. What, what we have there. Uh, again, it's it's a bit of a tricky one sometimes because we sometimes have a tendency to use the words interchangeably. Uh, we'll refer to the sovereignty of God and the providence of God, and we'll use them all in the same sentence as if they're synonymous. Let me give you a couple of uh, simple working definitions, and then we'll try and, and dig in a little bit deeper. Uh, when I was a, a young uh, boy, my mom would try and explain to me what God's sovereignty meant, and she would tell me, when God is sovereigns, sovereign, that means he can do anything he wants. And she would even exaggerate a little bit of that. God can do anything he wants. That's the, the sovereignty of God. That's a good working definition. If, if you're ever trying to remember, what is the sovereignty of God? Remember my mom saying, he can do anything he wants, okay? Um, when we speak of God's sovereignty, we are referring to his dominion. Uh, over everything. His, his legal claim over all things. He is before all things. He rules all things. You might think of, of God's sovereignty as a statement of position, a statement of position. Okay, I meant to put that up there earlier. Um, now, when we speak of his providence, 
I think it's fair to say that his providence flows out, is something that flows out of his sovereignty. Because he is over all things, he is sovereign, he will therefore exercise his divine plan, which I think you are both hinting at, his, his divine plan over all of it. So his providence refers to his divine plan or purpose. Another way to think about it is providence shares the same root word as the word, which I think you said, provision. God's providence refers to his provision over all creation. He has a plan for, for creation and his exercise, and he's exercising that plan according to his perfect will. So simply stated, God's sovereignty speaks to who he is. His providence speaks to what he does. All right? Let me get really practical with it now. Uh, I think some of you have heard me use an illustration before that sometimes my kids will, will get a little, uh, will act a little entitled. All right? For instance, my son might ask us, hey, uh, will you, when you go to the store next time, will you pick up this bag of, uh, of chips? I really like this flavor of chips, and, and, and so uh, I want to be able to snack on that. And generally speaking, we oblige and say, of course, we'll, we'll get you that because you're eating everything, and you can't seem to stop eating because you just are growing like a, a weed, and so we have to keep pouring food inside of you, so we get them everything. We get them all the things. So my son has his bag of chips, but, but uh, maybe, maybe I'd like a couple. Maybe I'll like a couple of these chips. So, so I go into the pantry and I will grab a handful of these chips and my son sees me doing this and he says, hey, those chips are mine. And my response to him, whose chips are they? <laughs> Who bought these chips, right? And, and so if I get the sense that they're being a little too greedy with the things that we buy for them, I'll get really dramatic about it. And, I, and I, then I'll say, I'll, I'll, I'll just go off the, the rails with it. Scott talks a little bit about hyperbole in the sermon this morning. I'll go off and I'll say, I want you to, I want you to look around here, son. Everything that you see, everything that you see, you know whose that is? It's mine. It's mine. And my wife's, of course, too. But to be really dramatic, I say, it's mine. The clothes you have on your back. They're mine. You see the house over your, the roof over your head? Mine. You know the things that you think you bought with your own money? Mine. Those are mine too. Everything. It's all mine. Okay, so when I make a statement like that, is that an expression of my sovereignty or my providence? Sovereignty. That's, that's me making an it's a, it's a bad comparison. Because, okay, but, uh, but that is me as if I were uh, making a statement about my, my sovereignty over... <laughs> those in my kingdom, <laughs> those under my rule, okay? Now, side note, I, I, am, I am very generous. I want you to know that. I want to teach my kids to be generous too. The truth is there's nothing in the house that is mine. It's not even mine, right? Uh, the bank owns it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the truth is everything I own is actually the Lord's. Everything I own is actually, it's all his. That's the underlying principle. I am not sovereign. He is sovereign. Okay. Now, extending the metaphor of the household a little further. Yes, my son has clothes on his back. He has a bed to sleep in. I make sure he never misses a meal. And not only that, I'm, I'm, I'm stashing away money to help him, uh, God willing, one day to go to college and get an education. Okay. Now, when I do those things, is that an expression of my sovereignty or my providence? Providence. Okay, now we're talking about provision, how I provide for, okay? That's more an accurate expression of my providence, of, of my provision for him. I have a plan. I have a plan, okay, and I'm executing that plan. I'm utilizing the resources available to me, what I'm sovereign over, right? 
And I'm using those resources to create and exercise and execute a plan. And, and this is where the, the metaphor breaks down a little bit because sometimes the plan that I'm executing fails, all right? Whereas God, God's plan, his provision, it doesn't fail. It never fails, okay? So far, so good. Does that make it pretty, pretty uh, um, accessible or understandable? Okay, so let's go a little deeper here uh, in the topic of God's providence. I want to specifically talk to you about God's providence, so his provision, his plan, okay, his plan for all creation. Um, And the first thing I want you to understand about the providence of God is that nothing, nothing is random, nothing. When we think of something happening randomly, we tend to attribute that to chance, We'll say, what are the chances that I will win the next billion-dollar lottery, which apparently just happened a few weeks ago? According to Powerball, the chances of someone winning the big jackpot are 1 in 292 million, okay? The chances are even higher if you don't play it, okay? So, and so you'll hear a statistic like that, and, uh, and, and sort of in the back of our minds, we'll think that... Uh, that it is chance. We'll attribute chance. It's chance that determines the winner of the lottery. It's, it's just chance, right? You were the lucky one whose numbers got picked. It wasn't determined by a person. It was just by chance that your numbers came up. So in terms of our discussion on providence, here's lesson number one, courtesy of my old friend, R.C. Sproul, who says this. In a universe governed by God, there are no chance events. Indeed, there is no such thing as chance. Chance does not exist. It is merely a word we use to describe mathematical possibilities. It's a descriptor. But chance itself has no power because it has no being. Chance is not an entity that can influence reality. Chance is not a thing. It is nothing. It is nothing. Let that sink in, particularly the line that says it's a word that we use to describe mathematical possibility. Now, thinking about the lottery might seem way out there because we can't seem to wrap our minds around one in 292 million. But uh, so let's let's take it the other way around. Let's let's take it much smaller. Uh, Let's just say uh, Dean, uh, MG and Todd and myself, let's just say we're going to go out for uh, for dinner tonight. Okay. Uh, we're going to go, and remember, in light of what I talked about last week, we don't want to get awkward with, okay, when, it, when the check comes out, who's going to pay? So we decide that we're going to nip it in the bud, and we're just going to say, okay, everyone put your credit card on the table, and, uh, and I'm going to put those credit cards in a hat, and then I'm going to shake up the hat, and then one card will be pulled out, and that is the person that will pay for all the meal. Okay? Fair enough? No. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> okay, so in that scenario, what is the mathematical, what's the chance that I'm going to end up paying for this meal? So you said 25%, one in four, yes, and one in the same. One in four, one in four. I have a one in four chance. Now, is that, is that actually, what, what determines, what determines uh, or the, 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 uh, who, who pays for the meal? What determines that? Mathematical probability, right? Okay, but there's all kinds of other things. What what ultimately determines what I, who who who's going to pay for the meal? Huh? Whoever picks the card up. I was certain someone was going to say, God. 
No one did. So I have to jump ahead in my outline here. Okay. Uh, so all kinds of things can contribute to what causes the card to come out, which card to come out. The, the strength in which I shake the hat can determine which card I'll pull out. Uh, how well the cards were mixed up. Maybe in what order the cards were placed in the hat. That can determine it. Maybe the, even the temperature in the room. That could somehow affect how the cards are mixed up in there. In other words, all kinds of factors go into determining which card is pulled out. But who is sovereign over all of those things? There we go. God. God is sovereign over all those factors that go into determining which card comes out. Even though we might describe it as mathematical probability or, or whatever else you want to call it. There is one who is sovereign over the temperature of the room, over, over the, the manner even which I shake the hat. Even the kind of hat that I have. God is sovereign over all of it. Okay, And the reason I pulled that card out of the hat is because that's the card that he wanted me to pull out of the hat. Okay? It's the reason that anything happens at all. Okay? Are you ready to hear that? It's the reason that anything happens at all. Because of God. So, just so you know I'm not spitballing up here and and just making stuff up, let's consult the Westminster Confession of Faith. And over the years, if you've been with me and you've heard me teach a time or two, you've heard me talk about this. uh, Because this is something we as Christians really have to get a a grasp on. And sometimes we, we don't want to. Uh, sometimes we want to we make excuses for God. Sometimes we want to apologize for him and say, no, 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 no. He, he's not responsible for, for that, right? This is what the Westminster says. And I love wrestling with this. This is from Westminster Confession, chapter 3.1. God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Now, before you start throwing things at me, we're not done, okay? That, that is not the entirety of the statement, but that's where we're going to start first. The Westminster Divines wrote this statement down, that God from all eternity by his most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Now, just so you know, uh, they're not just making stuff up. Um, everything they write in the confession is written as a result of something uh, drawn out of Scripture. You know, many things. Uh, for starters, Ephesians 1.11 says this, where the Apostle Paul tells us, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, some things, all things according to the counsel of his will. Man, oh man, there's a lot to unpack there, am I right? Let, let's pick apart some of, the, of these phrases here so we can really understand what's being said here. First of all, the confession tells us that God from all eternity. So if we're talking about God's plan, this is something that we have to understand first. I'm going to bring out three things that we have to understand about God's will. The first is this. God's plan is eternal. All right, God's plan is eternal. The verse in Ephesians underscores the idea when, he says, when it says predestined. Uh, when we say that God's plan is eternal, what does that mean? Does someone want to offer, offer uh, up a suggestion as to what we mean by God's eternal plan? Unchanging. Unchanging? Yeah. Someone else? Always was. Always was, always is. Yeah, very good. That's, those are great definitions. If we go back to the illustration of, uh, of Tracy and I saving up money for our kids to go to college, uh, when did we start 
making those plans. Did those plans have a start date? No, certainly, certainly. I think every one of us, uh, or either one of us, excuse, excuse me, uh, thought about, um, you know, one day sending, you know, these hypothetical kids to college. But before we were married, we didn't probably put much, a lot of thought into that. Before we knew each other, we thought maybe one day I'll have kids and maybe one day those kids will go to college. So, but there wasn't necessarily a plan. There was maybe an idea, right? Then, then once we got married, we had kids. Yes, we started thinking about that more. Oh, yeah, one day we need to send this kid to college now that we've had a child, uh, but, you know, when, when you're first married and you're first having kids, we barely had two nickels to rub together. And so we were happy to pay the rent, you know, let alone start thinking about how are we going to send these kids to college. We didn't have a plan yet. We didn't have a plan for it. And then we had another kid. And we're like, how are we going to send that kid to college? These kids are not going to go to college is what we said. No, no, no. Really. <laughs> no, at, at, at some point, again, the older they get, the more we start to think about that. And the more we start to get more specific with our plans because the, 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 the day is drawing nigh when I have a 16-year-old, a junior now, we're starting to do college visits and all those kind of things. And we really start to, uh, we have a, a firmer plan in place now, I'm happy to say, than what we did, say, 10 years ago. All right? Not so with God. Not so with God. If we look at this world and, and believe it to be the result of God carrying out his master plan, when did God work out? When did he formulate this master plan? Right? It might be difficult for you to wrap your mind around it, but eternal means that this plan is something that he always, always had from the get-go. God is eternal. He has no beginning or end. Similarly, his plans for the world are eternal. They have no beginning or end. In other words, his plans, listen to this, his plans are not reactionary. God's plans are not reactionary. He didn't, he didn't start carrying out his plan, then all of a sudden one day, well, it looks like Adam messed everything up. Time to go to plan B, right? That's not how it was. That's not how it was. He carried out his plan from the very beginning, from the very beginning, okay? Um, it's all part of his plan. Now, I know what that might prompt some of you to start thinking. Does that mean, did God plan for Adam to sin? That's where the rubber meets the road right there. Did God plan for Adam to sin? Did that say, hold on to that thought? Hold on to that thought. We're going to get there. But that's concept number one, that his plan, his provision, his providence is of eternal nature. Always was, always is, okay? Second, this statement tells us that the, the Westminster, let's see if I can back it up one, right? Two. Uh, freely, by his own will unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. So we have, number one, his plan is eternal. Number two, his plan is absolute. Absolute. Again, back to thinking about, um, when we think about the Westminster, when it uses words like unchangeably, uh, and that follows the, whatsoever comes to pass, that refers to the absolute nature of his plan. So back to the, the illustration about, about college. Even after Tracy and I began to actually formulate a plan for how we're going to get our kids into college and how we're going to pay for it, uh, we, we could get really specific about it, okay? Uh, we could create a plan, map it out, and, and get very detailed about it so that by the time our eldest finishes his junior year, we've got it all worked out, right? Is that an absolute plan? Is that absolute? It is not. It's not an absolute. Not at all. So many things could change. So many things. He may decide he doesn't want to go to college. He won't decide that. Trust me. 
But if he does, but if he does decide that, that he doesn't want to go to college, I'm going to buy a boat. No, 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 no kidding. He, he could get a scholarship. He could get a full ride uh, somewhere. Yes, yes, uh, let it be so, Lord. He might even uh, get into a college that costs way more than we ever anticipated, right? I, I could lose my job. I could lose, just for what I'm saying in here today, I could lose my job and not have two nickels to rub together. All kinds of things that could happen that could derail our plan. What does absolute mean? It, it means with God, there, there is no uncertainty in that regard. Uh, I just happened to see this yesterday. I was out for a run in a different path that I don't, normally don't, don't go, and there was, it took me out behind a school, and it said, uh, when I got to, it was behind the, the soccer fields, and it said, it didn't just say, no pets on the field, okay? If they wanted to say, hey, no pets on the field, they could have put that, but they said, absolutely no pets on the soccer field. What does that mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, wait a minute. Absolutely, is that... Now, now, Rhoda, I know she, you have a really tiny, tiny dog. Do you have him in your pocket by any chance? That's how, that, this is the only day I don't keep my service dog. The only day she doesn't have, but it, it's so tiny. It's so tiny that may, maybe, is it okay for that dog to go on the soccer field? Absolutely no no pets on the soccer field. So what, what does it mean when we say absolute? It's, it's, that, that is final. That is final, okay? Uh, that, that is it. God's plan on the other hand, it's absolute. His plan covers every detail. There's no need for contingency because what he decrees will happen. His plan covers everything, including what we would, we would ascribe to chance. In, in talking about the lottery, lottery I, I, I had to look up the statistics for winning a lottery. And, and according to some of them, uh, one reference told me, you have a better statistical chance of getting struck by lightning than winning the lottery. I've heard that many times. I don't know why they always have to go with struck by lightning. <laughs> Why do they have to be so morbid about it? You know, why not? You have a better chance of uh, having a tea with an emu or something like that. Why does it have to be so dark? Either way, when we say that God's plan is absolute, we might say that the odds of getting struck by lightning are 50-50. It's either yes, it's his will or no, it's not his will. All right. You might say, oh, no, no, I can beat those odds. I'll never go outside. Uh, and, and therefore, I'll never get struck by lightning. You know, there, there's a passage into that. I said, there's a passage in 1 Kings 22. This is such a fun story. Um, it, to illustrate this, we read about King Ahab hat, hatching up a plan uh, to keep himself safe in battle. And uh, King Ahab was the, the king of Israel, and King Jehoshaphat was the, the king of the northern kingdom, Judah. And Ahab, so one king, tells the other king, hey, I've got a great idea. The Syrians are invading. Okay, so I'm going to dress up like I'm going to disguise, like I'm just going to be a regular person. I'm just going to dress up like a regular person. You go out in all your king's attire. Okay, what a good idea that is. Now, that's an important detail uh, because the Syrians were instructed to look only and hunt down the king of Israel, Ahab. All right, so Ahab thinks he's got it all under control. I'm in regular clothes. King's out in his, his regalia. I'm going to be just fine. So the Syrians come looking for him. They chase down Jehoshaphat, thinking that this is their guy, only discover, nope, this isn't him. And then this happens. This is 1 Kings 22, 33-34. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale of armor and the breastplates. Chance, right? <laughs> was it chance or was it an appointment from God between the arrow and the king, right? Can you imagine, though, 
at random. And, and, and again, it hits them in the exact right spot. I have a friend who, who likes to say in circumstances like this, that's God going out of his way to get you, you know? <laughs> uh, uh, like if you were struck by lightning. You know, what are the chances of that happening? Again, it's either God's will or it isn't. It's either Ahab's time to go or it isn't. Even though he tries to duck out of it or avoid it, it was his time. So God's plan is eternal. God's plan is absolute. And thirdly, there's one more thing before we open it up to questions that, that might happen as a result of, of all this discussion. I'm going to wait on the third one. I'm just going to wait on it. I'm going to sit on it for a little bit. I'm going to hold out uh, because that's where I want to end. So before we get to the final thing we can say about God's will, we're going to talk uh, about maybe an objection. Okay? Along with the first objection that usually happens at this point is, uh, um, okay, if God really does ordain whatsoever comes to pass, if his plan is eternal, if his plan is absolute, does that negate free will? Does that negate free will? Are, are we, aren't we creatures of free will? Or are we just robots carrying out God's master plan? Well, now I'm going to put up the rest of the statement from the Westminster Confession. And I read you the opening words of chapter 3. That's the rest of the statement. God from all eternity, by his most holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, ordained whatsoever comes to pass, here's the rest of it, starting with yet. Yet so, as thereby, neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty, freedom, right, or contingency of second chances or second causes taken away, but rather established. That's a mouthful I know. But if you get a sense of it, you might start to think, this is a bit of a cop-out. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. You mean everything? You mean everything that ever happens turns out the way it does because it was all part of God's plan? Yes, that's what I'm saying. So you're telling me that God is responsible for sin? No, that's not what I'm saying. Here's what I am saying. Uh, the fancy word for what I'm going to uh, pull out here is uh, concurrence. Concurrence. Do I just like that, that word? Yes, concurrence. Concurrence refers to the, the coterminous actions of God and human beings. So it's a both and setup. We are creatures with a will of our own. You know, we make things happen. Yet the causal power we exert is secondary. It's secondary. This is why the Westminster says liberty or contingency of second causes isn't taken away. It simply refers to the means, the means by which God accomplishes his will. So in other words, we sin by our own free choosing. And even in our sin, God uses the actions that he did not force us to make as the means of bringing about his will. Okay? It's as if God's providence, his plans hovers over our actions, over and above our actions. He works out his will through the actions of our human will without violating it. Now, how does that work? Whenever I talk about this, uh, this concept, I pull out this illustration, and, uh, and I'm going to keep pulling it out until I have a better one, but it's like when I walk my dog, and I'm going to, again, I'm going to keep using this illustration until I think of a better one, but, but the idea is when I, when I get to walking my dog, there are two wills at play. My will and the dog's will, right? It's my desire to exercise my will over the dog's will, so I put a leash on my dog. I'm keeping my dog within, within a few feet uh, by way of the leash, okay? Now, 
I don't know how many of you all have dogs, and I don't know how well your, your dog is trained. Uh, I know many people who have trained their dog to walk right beside the owner so there is no tension on the leash. That is not how my dog works, okay? Whenever we walk uh, the dog, there is always tension on the leash, always. If I didn't have the leash on, my dog would go far away from me because that's what the dog wants to do. That's the dog's will, okay? Yet I keep the dog on the leash because that's what I want. That's what I want. Now, the leash I have is an, a, a retractable leash, so I, so I can keep it one foot long or I can, I can uh, let it out to about 12 feet. So, so if I let some slack out on the leash, the dog will take every bit of that leash that I'll allow her to have. If I let it out 12 feet, that leash will extend 12 feet. Why? Because that's the nature of the dog. You know, the, the, the will of the dog, it, it's within the dog's nature to be an animal and sniff and explore and run after things and be wild. And the only thing I have to do in order for the dog to do that is let her. That's all I got to do. The same is true with humans and God. The only thing God has to do for humans to engage in sin is let them. Okay, he doesn't have to coerce or push us. All he has to do is let us. He just has to let humans be humans, and we will stretch the limits of whatever he allows. And over the course of our sinful behavior, which he does not cause, he redeems us and he saves us. All right? The Bible has this repetitive theme throughout every verse, every chapter, and every book. If you start at Genesis and proceed through the uh, Old Testament into the New, the reoccurring structure that you'll find in the Bible is this. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. This is like the repeating plot line of the Bible that you read about over and over and over and over again. It's really pronounced in the Old Testament and finally sort of comes to completion or fulfillment in the New Testament. But over and over and over again, creation, fall, restoration, redemption, it's the, the, the story is told over and over again. He creates us. We run away. Despite the fact that we run away, he restores us. But not only does he save us, but he redeems us. And what I mean by redeem is that he makes us new again. He makes us new again. And that is the repetitive plot of the Bible. So, so yes, he lets the leash out and the humans just go and be humans. And in allowing that to happen, he then restores us and redeems us. Okay, so now here's the big question. Why does he do that? Why, why does he allow it all? Why does, he allow us to, why does he allow us to fall away in the first place? Why does he allow that? If it's all his plan, if he's over all of it, even if he doesn't cause, he's not the, 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 the primary cause of the sin, why did he do it this way? Why does he let sin enter into the equation at all? Couldn't he have just stopped it right from the get-go? Well, this is where we're going to put up the third characteristic about his plan. Okay, this is the third characteristic. Remember this, we said eternal, we said absolute, and then thirdly, for his own glory. Now, that might sound a little bit like a parent when they said, because I said so, right? That was always a tough one to hear when I was growing up, because I said so. I just want a reason, but that is the reason, for his own glory, all right? Revelation 4.11 describes it, this way. Worthy are you. This is a, a singing. This is a, they're singing out the, 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 uh, the role of the Lord here. The, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed, and they were created. 
God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, from whom, by whom, and for whom all things are created. In other words, he doesn't give us a reason for what he does that goes beyond himself. He does these things because of who he is. There is not any other reason. Again, it's not reactionary. So what God plans and executes is for the reason of his own good pleasure. So God brings about sin for his own good pleasure? If I say yes, that's probably going to upset you. So I'm not going to say yes. But what you need to hear me say is that he allows sin to enter the world so he can be completely and fully consistent with his own character. All right? If I do things seeking my own glory, seeking, you know, praise and and, worship me, guys, uh, that would be wrong. (laughs) That would be wrong. You wouldn't like that. You wouldn't want to be around me. And and so what we do is... uh, is try and place that metric on God. Okay, if I'm not allowed to say, yes, praise me, why is God allowed to say, yes, because of my glory, because of my honor, worship and praise me? Why is he allowed to say that? Why are we okay with God bringing glory to himself? And the reason is because it is right for God to do this for the very same reason that it is wrong for me to bring glory to myself. It's wrong for me to bring glory to myself because I'm sinful. I'm a mere creature. And if I bring glory to myself, I am denying what I am. I'm broken. If God were to deny himself glory, that would be wrong because he would be denying who he is. And God cannot deny himself. He must be true to himself and and to receive and bring glory to himself is right because he is perfect. He's perfect. And he's the only one who is perfect. Now, I say all that to say this. It is consistent with his character, the perfect one, to redeem and to restore. To redeem and restore the not perfect ones. When God created humanity, uh, he he could not create his equal. He couldn't do that. Uh, That would be inconsistent with his character to create another God, so to speak. All right? So when he created humanity, yes, he created an inferior being, but in so doing, he also created a means by which he would restore and redeem that inferior being. Now, I know that's a lot. That's a lot to wrap your head around. And when we get down to brass tacks, it seems like the, and we're running out of time here too, so I'm sorry about that, but at the end of the day, when we get down to brass tacks, what we really want to know, the only thing we really want to know is even if that's all true, even if God does ordain whatsoever comes to pass, even if he, he has a good reason for bringing or allowing sin into the world, is he good? Can you at least tell me that he's good? And the answer to that is yes. Yes, he is good. Uh, you, you certainly can't say that he doesn't care. You certainly can't say that he's indifferent to it. He's not sitting up there saying, this is how I've decided to do it, now deal with it. Quite the contrary. Instead, he's putting himself in the middle of it. He puts himself in the middle of it. Instead of leaving us to deal with our own brokenness, he entered the world in 2 Corinthians 5.21. I love saying this one in communion time. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why did he let sin into the world? Let's just say I'm not entirely sure. Let's just say that. I'm not entirely sure, but this is what we know. He became sin. 
For what purpose? To let us in on the glory, to redeem us and to restore us. He became what we're saying. Why did he let that in? He became that. He let it in only to take it upon himself so that we might be restored and redeemed and and taste his glory. Now, let me stop there because I know that's a lot and we probably only have uh, time for a couple of questions. But again, as with everything, if this is something you're wrestling with or you need further uh, clarification on or description or whatever, let me know. I'm happy to to help with that. Are there any other questions that I can try and answer within the next couple of minutes that you have right now? Anybody have anything? Or did I just drop a bomb on you guys? (laughs) And you're like, now I don't know what to think. Anybody? Yes, sir. In, in, in Exodus, um, Moses. In Exodus, Moses. What? Moses. Uh, God seemed to be uh, changed. Yeah. When it says, uh, "And God changed his mind," right? Great question. What a good question. Yes, there are a couple of passages in Scripture. Uh, the one that Todd brought up right there in Exodus is one of them where it says that God relented. God changed his mind because it, uh, uh, the Lord was saying, you know what? I, I'm sick of these people. I'm tired of them. I've had it with them. I'm going to destroy them all. And then Moses says, no, 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 you can't do that because this is who you are. This is who you said you were. And remember all these things. And, and you can't do that because of, of your faithfulness and, and who you are. You are their people. And what would the other, what would the neighboring nations think if, if all of a sudden you destroyed your own people? God, you can't do that. And then God says, all right. All right, I won't, I won't, I won't destroy them after all. What just happened there? Did God, did God actually change his mind? Are there some of you that think, well, maybe, maybe he really did. Or, or, I'll just give you the answer. <laughs> the, there's something called, uh, the fancy word for it is anthropomorphism, uh, where, where sometimes we ascribe God human characteristics because that's the best way that we can describe what God is doing in the moment. So to, to the human writing down the account, it does appear as though God changed his mind, but did in fact God change his mind? No, I think it, it was his interaction with Moses. He was trying to draw something out of Moses, and in that, you know what, you know what I'm going to do? He had every right to do that. He could have. He could have just said, because of their stiff-necked nature, he could have just said, you know what, I am going to do it. He had every right to do that. And so in that sense, he, maybe he would have, but instead, he carried out his own will, which was, I'm not going to destroy these people, even though they've got it coming to them. And again, that's a description that, uh, that Moses, the author of that passage, put down as best described what was happening in the moment. Uh, but yes, what Scripture um, affirms elsewhere is that, yeah, God's mind is eternal. Even in that moment, he didn't suddenly have a change of heart. So, well, you know, Moses, you made a pretty good argument. I didn't consider that one, Moses. We don't want a God who, who says that. We don't want a God who says, oh, Moses just thought of something that I didn't think of. Right? Yeah, we don't want that. We don't want that. Good question. Someone else? I was just going to say an observation is that intellectually, it makes Intellectually, this makes sense. Emotionally, it's difficult. Emotionally, it's difficult. That's right. Or, or, or somebody who's dedicated their life to the Lord to fall away from the Lord so far. You know, it's it's hard to, to yeah, it's hard. Yeah. And, and so faith lies somewhere in the middle of that emotion for us and the intellectual part. But um, that's a really that's a really really good point. Remind me of your name again. It's Trisha. Trisha. Okay, thank you, Trisha. Uh, that's a really, really good point because uh, we, we do we want to wrap our minds around this. And intellectually, yeah, we can say, okay, I get it. I understand the principle, but sometimes uh, it's difficult. Sometimes emotionally it's difficult because why, why would God allow any of that? 
Uh, and, and there's a certain point that we can try and describe all of this as best we can, but I do think there is a component or an element of mystery to all this, uh, where we say, you know what? Uh, and that's where I ended where I did, uh, where that we may come to a result where we say, um, I don't understand. I still don't get it. It still feels mysterious to me and doesn't feel consistent with what I think should be right. But again, number one, we have to remember he's God. We're not. But number two, he's not indifferent. He's not indifferent. He placed himself in the middle of it to redeem and restore us from it. And, and there's still a promise that we read about in Revelation 21. And this is really interesting, okay? Is that it's not only that, that Jesus comes back. It's not only that Jesus uh, uh, redeems or restores, but, but he does, like I said, redeem. And the language there is very curious about, about uh, making sad things untrue or, 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 or uh, making all things new again, okay, is the language. And what that seems to tell us is that, yes, we will have gone through the negative experience, but the fact that we have gone through the negative experience somehow enhances our understanding of the glorious. And that our understanding of the glorious is better for having been through the negative and the dark and the sinful uh, than if we had not. And, uh, and again, sometimes that is not anything I would ever say, for instance, um, at a graveside. That is not something I would ever say to someone who's, who, for instance, just lost a child or something like that. And, and something we talked about this week in, uh, in, in Bible study, for those who went to the Signs of the Savior curriculum, uh, we talked about Lazarus. And I love talking about that account because what we see in that account is that Jesus wept. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, even though he knew it was about to come next. So it doesn't negate the pain that you feel in the moment. But the fact that he raised Lazarus from the dead is a pointer to the fact that he would undo the effects of sin undo the curse of sin so that Lazarus would walk again. And again, that's just a pointer because like I pointed out in this Bible says that he died again. Lazarus died again, but that, the fact that he died again was a pointer to the fact that one day Jesus would be resurrected and you and I would be resurrected and the effects of sin would be undone. And all the more glorious for having been through it and having not because that's what Jesus said to everyone that, that, uh, that asked him about with Lazarus. Lord, if you had only been here, if you'd only been here, you could, have, you could have prevented this from happening. And his response was, I'm glad. Which that, that there's a rub at that word. You're, I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm glad I, why? So that you would experience the glory. So that you would understand the glory. And I think somewhere in there lies the secret as to why he allows it. Um, and again, it still stops us short sometimes. So in that respect, we have to say, okay, Lord, I trust you. Uh, I have faith in you. And uh, I believe you, even though I'm not fully there yet. Uh, but I thank you for the fact that you didn't leave me alone here to wrestle with it by myself. And that you've saved me and redeemed me and will one day resurrect me too. So, great question. Thank you for asking that. And that takes us all the way to 11 o'clock. And I've got to be in the, in the sanctuary. <laughs> Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the wonder of your word. Uh, that it is mysterious. Uh, but at the same time, you've, you've not left us to grope in the dark. You've given, us, you've given us things. You've given us something to wrestle with. You've given us something that tells us more of yourself so that we know that we're not left here alone, uh, that you are here and you have saved us. Uh, you've restored us and you will ultimately redeem us. Uh, thank you that you've given us that uh, and so much more. Uh, thank you for all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.